Romans chapter 6. Uh, open your Bibles with me to uh, Romans chapter 6. And then hold your place there and go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, the Gospel of John. The Roman Empire in the first century was an empire built on the backs of slaves. Uh, Up to a third of the population of the empire were people who were in one form or another. There were different levels of slavery, but people who were indentured, people who were enslaved. Uh, Their numbers are at least, were at least in the millions. Uh, There are many that talk about them being in the tens of millions. It was a very popular uh, aspect of their culture. They, when they conquered a a nation, they enslaved the people, put them, carted them off. Uh, The diaspora was, by and large, which was uh, when they dispersed the peoples across the uh, the empire that would be because they had been enslaved and they were sold and all of that. A wealthy Roman might even have owned somewhere between 400 and 500 slaves. And they were considered property under Roman law. They had no legal identity. You were chattel. You were property. Unlike Roman citizens, they could be subjected to corporal punishment uh, torture, even execution at the whim of their masters. In other words, <clears throat> you do a poor job now, you get fired. You didn't get fired then. <laughs> they, you, sum, summarily executed uh, their slaves that were rebellious, that were uh, kicking against what their authority was. And usually that was the head of the house or the head of the, the particular uh, deal that they were part of, that they were indentured to. The point is that in the first century, the people understood the concept of slavery well. They understood. They would connect with the statements that Jesus said, because he used this concept in John chapter 8, and they would connect with what Paul had to say to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 6. In John chapter 8, verse 31 we read, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. Now, excuse me, he had been teaching about the kingdom principles. He was just finishing prophesying about his death when the son of man is lifted up. Uh, And it says to those who had believed, it says many believed on him there. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. (laughs) And that got them scratching their heads. And they answered and said, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? And verse 34 of John chapter 8, Jesus says this to them. He says, most assuredly, or verily, verily, or in our vernacular, right on, right on. Amen, amen. Uh, this is, and when he, whenever he said that, whenever he used those terms, it meant what's coming is important. Hang your hat on it. This is something that you need to understand. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So the Apostle Paul, as I mentioned, he parallels Jesus' statements here as well in John chapter 6, or I mean in Romans chapter 6. So as we get into that, look at, and remember as we've been here in chapter 6 for a few weeks, that Paul, under the direction and anointing of the Holy Spirit, he sort of divides this uh, chapter into two nicely separated parts. In the first part, uh, it begins in, in verse 1, and the second part begins in verse, verse 15, where we'll be today. But in verse 1, he begins by asking the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What he's clearly speaking of here is habitual sin. He's talking about, do we continue in our lifestyle of sin? Do we continue to go and to live for ourselves, essentially, so that grace may abound? And we looked at his response, certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. No, 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 no. But he's clearly talking about habitual sin. He goes on in verses 
uh, 2 through 14 to explain that Christ had broken the power of sin for those who have come to believe. Now, coming to believe him, to believe in him, the penalty for sin is done away with. And now what we've been looking at is we're looking at the doctrine of sanctification is the power of sin. That we are, by declaration, at the moment of our conversion, made holy. That's just a done deal. It's part of the package. Uh, and he, he's talking about this power of sin, and, and he makes reference in those first 14 verses to that which enslaves us. There's that concept, and he's going to unpack it here in the last half of this chapter. So as a result of that power of sin being broken, we're transformed by the Spirit of God. Our lives are transformed. Uh, And that transformation means that we now live a different kind of life as Christians. We've been set apart. That's what holy means. It means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be Uh, in this sense, set apart for our master's use, declared holy. Being now different people, we can't comfortably continue in habitual sin. It doesn't fit. That's why all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but I remember my conversion experiences that almost immediately, the music I listened to, the habits that I had, uh, the, my being around other people who had not been saved, I mean, almost immediately there was a shift in my heart, and I was uncomfortable very often. And I was spending time on my knees repenting of my own sin and very aware of what was going on around me and all of that. Uh, so in that, last week we talked about temptations. We talked about what to do with temptations uh, and and. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we take an aggressive stance against them as we reckon that old man, remember we looked at the old man, to be dead. And and, and I I mentioned, you know, you don't want to, it's not about self-help and all of that. We'll get into that in a minute. It's about understanding I am a new creation in Christ. And I reckon that old man to be dead. I understand that that is a, it is something that God said I I apply that to my life, I believe that, and I want to sin less. I'm not going to be sinless, but I want to sin less. Because in that, we voluntarily yield ourselves as slaves to righteousness. And that's what we're going to be looking at, we're going to dive into today in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Now, I want you to note three words that summarize the reasons we yield in that, in these last verses in this, in this chapter. The first is favor. In verses 14 and 15, uh, Paul uses the word, uh, words that we are under grace. That is simply God's favor. And it's poured out on our lives in infinite measure. We've looked at that. You can't, when we looked at chapter 5, you can't out-sin the grace of God. And if somebody has a posture that they're trying to, then they need to check and see whether they really belong to him. But the point is, is that where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So we ended with verse 14 last week. I want to start there this morning because it connects us to verse 15. Verse 15 is, is sort of a continuation of the thought that he puts forth. In verse 14, he says, In verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There's that favor. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. There's that that term again, not a chance. That is not what is being indicated here. Very strong language. So in verse 15, he seems to ask the same question as in verse 1. Not so fast. It's not. Uh, it's not the same question for two reasons. The first is that he brings up the issue between law and grace. That's not, he's talking about grace in verse 1, but he doesn't use this contrast. We're not under law, but under grace. The second is it's not the same question because of the grammar that he uses. The structure in Greek, in Koine Greek, uh, is very different. And, and there are some nuances there that really clear it up for us. Because 
I mean, on the surface, either way that you look at it, it it's an easy question. Shall we sin? <laughs> and so why is that an issue? That, that's what I look at when I read this. I think, well, okay, it's pretty clear. He's saying, no, don't, get, don't be caught up in a lifestyle of sin. Uh, but the, the reason that's an issue, folks, is because sin is an ongoing issue in your life and in mine. Anything short of the holy perfection of God, if you look at the broadest definition of sin, is sin. And so it's an ongoing issue. It's something that we wrestle with, and I believe that God wants us to wrestle. We'll talk about that as we go. Uh, and, and last week when we talked about applying God's word to our lives, the question then becomes, as we look at this, is how serious are we going to be in our own battle, our own struggle, our own wrestling with sin? Because it's sin that keeps us, essentially, from being better people. Now, uh, let me ask you, what keeps you from being a better husband, a better wife? Uh, what keeps you from being a better employer or a better employee? If you strip it down, if you pull away the layers, you'll see that at the root of it is sin. And we've looked at the, last week at three, I, I, I should, remember I showed you three slides, I'm not going to show the slides again, uh, of ways that are not to be a better person. Uh, the first, remember we looked at the picture of Nancy Reagan and that whole ad campaign that was going all over the country uh, years ago. It was just say no. And, and that's not going to work. You don't have that power in yourself. You might say no this time, but next time temptation over, overwhelms you. It's not about just saying no. And yeah, we want to say no to sin. Don't get me wrong. But it's not about self-effort. It's not by becoming an ascetic. We looked at that. I showed a guy with an iron collar on. You know, it's not about going running off to the hills and isolating yourself from humanity so that you never sin. That's not practical. <laughs> and we looked at that too. It's cultic. It's, it's very weird, metaphysical and all that. Uh, the last one, and this is popular in our culture, it's not by becoming a better person or a better you through self-help. And, and I'll tell you what, folks, some of the phony Christianity that's going on out there reduces our faith to self-help, to a, sort of a psychological, a pop psychological message. Let me grab a, a scripture out of the Bible and then spend an hour telling you how you can be better. It's not about that. So the question then becomes, how do I become a better person? How do I see this transformation cooperate with this transforming work that God is doing in my life? And, and, and essentially that question translates as to how can I sin less? Not, again, not sinless, not become sinless. Um, but that's the question that Paul's dealing with here in verse 15. Notice he says, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? He's referring, again, to verse 14, where he says, sin will not have dominion over you, for you're not under law. You're under grace. So he's explained to us here in chapter 6 that God did a transforming work within us. We've looked at that. that that's that different life that he talks about. The old man has died with Jesus, and the new man was put in his place. Now, we covered that last week. But that's not all. In verse 14, Paul also speaks of being put into a new environment. It's a whole new environment because once he was under law and now he's under God's favor. He's under grace. We, before coming to Christ, were under law because if you're not under grace, you, the law is still in effect. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's there. We've looked at that. A law unto themselves. The Gentiles did the things of the law because they're a law unto themselves. They still had a conscience, even though the conscience is fallen. Because a person who's not under, is not born again is not under grace. They're still under law. The law, essentially, it's a list of thou shalt nots. It's the rules to follow, the whole list. And, and religion says, and the world looks in, they look at the body of Christ and say, oh, you guys just, uh, you're just a bunch of people that follow these rules. You have a lot of rules that you have to live by. That's not it at all. We're going to talk about what it is to be obedient from the heart. 
the law it lays down a line. It establishes a standard. And when you live under it, you're continually comparing yourself to that standard. And you live in fear and guilt. That's what it produces. It's not about rules. For the first century Jews, living life under the law was everything. For them, the law was the way to God's approval by keeping these endless lists of obedience. It was how they looked at the way to obtain eternal, eternal life. So, but now Paul says, in light of the new covenant, you're no longer living under the principle of law. You live under the principle of grace. Those two don't mix, folks. I served with a guy one time that he just could not get that we have a grace relation. He's very legalistic. <laughs> and at every time, it's like every time he would come up to teaching about alcohol, he did everything he could to make that a doctrine. And I'd tell him privately, brother, you can't do that. Yeah, alcohol's wrecked endless lives for millennia. Yeah, it can, it can enslave you. We're going to talk about that. But the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol. It condemns alcoholism. And you've got to be really clear. Uh, we want, you know, our human condition, we want the rules. I, I want to be able to check the boxes at the end of the day. And man, I was really good today. I sinned less today. But that's not it. It's not external. It's a change in our hearts. We live in a different environment. We don't live under law. We live under grace. And praise God that we do. Uh, The question then becomes, are we really concerned about sin under this principle of grace? Because I understand that at the moment of my conversion, I was declared not just righteous, but I was declared holy. That when God looks at me from that point forward for the rest of eternity, he sees me clothed in the righteousness of Christ, justified in his sight. I can't undo that. And when he looks at me, he sees me as holy. He sees me as infinitely pure because I have the purity, the moral purity. That's what holiness is. It's infinite moral purity. It's it's the holiness of God. He sees me in that light. He doesn't see me any, any longer in my sin, in the wretchedness that sin produces in my life and what it did in my life. So with that being the case, what is my posture towards sin? If I know that God's already taken care of it, it was already taken out of the way at the cross. If you look at the difference between law and grace, law produced fear, as I mentioned. It's it's about don't do this or do do that. Because if you don't do that, it's it's the if-then in the Old Testament. that You've got to be really careful in the New Testament. There's not a lot of if-then. But in the Old Testament, it's if you do this, you'll live. If you don't do this, then you die. The law, it was a cruel taskmaster. Is it not that the law was no good? No, of course not. It's an expression of the heart of God. Man's problem is that he could not keep it. He cannot attain that. The 613 laws that are listed in the Old Testament, there is no way, no possible way that you can create righteousness from that. The religious leaders in Jesus' day thought that they could. That's why they had all the lists. But that's why Jesus addressed that. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you can't see the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven. It's all about his righteousness being put into my life. So rather than living under fear and living under law, we live under grace. And and the relationship, the nature of the relationship is so vastly different. The the nature of the relationship is, is God saying, I love you. I've forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. I want a relationship with you. I want to have fellowship with you. That's grace. 
Yeah, I've taken that out of the way. It's gone. I don't see that in you. I have forgotten. And it's not that God can forget. He says, I choose to remember your sin no more. It's gone. So practically speaking, do we care about sin in this new environment? This environment of grace. Verse 15, again, what then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Paul writes here, he says, shall we sin? And when he says that, that there's a specific verb tense in the original language. And I'm not going to get into the whole deal there. But the point is, is that Koine Greek is in many ways a far more precise language than English. And there are verb forms and tenses in that language that don't exist in English. You have to assume them by the, the, the context of what's being said. So let me just make a shortcut here, and you're welcome to study it out yourself. Verse 1 deals with habitual sin. The reason why verse 15 is different is it deals with occasional sin. He's saying, what then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. Shall we occasionally sin? Because this is the case. These are two very different questions. Uh, Verse 1, shall we continue in habitual sin? No. No. Verse 15, shall we continue in occasional sin? No, because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. It's out of the question. So the question again there becomes, why not? Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you're that one's slaves to whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. There's that concept of slavery, of being enslaved. The same one that Jesus used back in John chapter 8. I want you to understand, this is a really simple principle here. He's he's saying, you will obey whomever you serve. It's very practical. Um, we, were, we went to a wedding in Washington State this last week, and we were coming home on Friday, and I saw in my rearview mirror, I saw some motion that kind of got my attention. And there was this guy, he was just wildly dodging in and out, and there was traffic. But he's like doing this. And I said to Stacy, I said, wow, that guy is really coming up fast. And she said, who? And she thought it was somebody else. I said, no. And about that time, he zipped by her, her side of the car. I said, no, that guy. <laughs> and, and then he continued to weave in and out of traffic. And he got off at the exit that we were coming up on. As we passed, I looked up. I said, yeah, I think he gained about two or three seconds. Good. Put everybody's life at risk. <laughs> He's serving the law of sin. And that manifests in so many different ways. Uh, Yeah, we're just putting along, but there's no restraint. The world doesn't see restraint. Sin doesn't see restraint. That's why you get evil rulers into power, and pretty soon the gloves are off, and there's no restraint. That's why we've seen mass genocide in the last hundred years, different ones in different places because people that serve the law of sin don't understand restraint. The point that Paul's making here is that if we sell out to sin, we will become slaves to it. You talk to anybody who is honest and upfront, who has had an addiction to pornography, who's had an addiction to sex, who's had an addiction to drugs, and they will talk about the pull that that has had on their lives. You may be in that place. That pull can be broken. And it's broken. it was broken positionally at the cross. It can be broken practically in your life. On the other hand, if we choose to obey God, the result is that we become enslaved to him. We become enslaved to living a sanctified life a holy life. That's true freedom. That's the freedom that Jesus talked about in John chapter 8. That's where he says, you know what? It's gone. Past, present, future. I don't see you that way. Now, I want you to live. I have put you in a new environment. I want you to live there. I want you to flourish there, not just get by. 
Because sin doesn't have dominion over you any longer. The point here is everybody will be a slave to something. Everybody in this room, everybody within the sound of my voice, you will be a slave to something. The question is to what? The sign that reveals our choice is obedience. Either to sin or to God. There's no third choice there. We're either enslaved to sin, which we were born into, or we're enslaved to righteousness. We're enslaved to God. What are you going to choose? You have to sign one contract or the other. It's like you have two contracts here in front of you because the law was the old covenant, right? Covenant means contract. The, the, the grace is the new covenant. It means contract. Which one are you going to sign on to? I know the answer in my life and I assume the answer in yours. Nobody wants to sign on to a cruel taskmaster. Nobody wants to so- sign on to be a slave to sin, to be a slave to sin that leads to death. That's what he goes on to talk about here. To try to be neutral is to, by default, choose sin because it constitutes a refusal to serve God. So good luck trying to live your life on the fence. There is no fence. That's why Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. There's no fence. You either choose sin and, to be, and you're enslaved to that or you choose righteousness and you're enslaved to that. No third answer. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this well. He says, no one can serve two masters. He doesn't say three. For either, either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and and be planted in the ways of this world, is what he's saying. It's oil and water. It doesn't, it will never mix. Verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He doesn't say the pattern of teaching or that... uh, you obeyed the, the doctrine of that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That word form means pattern. Uh, he doesn't say that, that you accepted that. He says you were delivered to that. That's significant. He's talking about God's activity, not mine. He says you were. It's past tense. He's saying that our obedience to sin is a thing of the past. You were slaves of sin. So the question becomes, how were you set free? The answer is when you became obedient from the heart to that form, that pattern of doctrine, which now forms the basis of reality in your life. Now, the Greek word for form, it's it's talking about, uh, the Greek word is tupos. And what it is, it's, it's, it's the word for a mold, actually. He's saying that you were essentially melted down and poured into a mold. And it's not, I don't want to make it sound like we are all like exactly the same. God just punches out. But but he's saying that there was a mold. It is a visual form designed to be imitated or copied. What he's saying here is God is patterning us into his image. That's just a fascinating concept to me. It's a fascinating truth that we see here in the original language that it's not that it's not he's like rubber stamping. No, that's not what he's meaning. What he's saying is you were born into the image of Adam. We've looked at that. And now you're being molded. Your life is being transformed. You're being poured into the image of Christ. That pattern of teaching refers to the doctrinal patterns, yeah, of these truths and the patterns they take. But even more, it refers to the way of teaching that God, teaching God's word shapes or molds us as believers. 
So he's saying, you're not living by the law of Moses. You're not, you know, I I am not committed to studying those 613 laws. And when we get into chapter 8, we'll look at what it means by the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. But he's talking about Christians who are no longer under the law. Uh, Law is not the guiding principle in my life. Grace is. So is there a guiding principle? Yes. What is that? It's the word of God. I take my cues from God's word, not from the old covenant, not from law, but being under his grace. I see that there's a pattern of teaching that he is using to mold me, to conform me to the image of his son. God's, and here's the point, guys. With the Old Testament, it was all external. You look in Jeremiah 31, which is quoted in Hebrews, but he says, look, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will put a new law into their hearts, not like the old one, which they broke when I led them out of the land of Egypt, but in this new one, one man will not teach another saying, know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? Because the spirit of God takes and takes that new man now being activated, now living in a different environment than I was in when I was in the world. And now he quickens me. Jesus said the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is he will convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and he will lead you into all truth. What is the source of truth? The word of God, the pattern of teaching that he talks about here. We're no longer under the law as the guiding principle in our lives. This is his point. Uh, we're under the guiding principle of grace. God's word no longer impacts the outer man in external obedience, list of rules. Having a new nature, God's word impacts the inner man. And now we become obedient from the heart. Why do we become obedient? Because of his grace. That's the freedom that Jesus was talking about. That's the freedom that Paul is talking about. That my life now doesn't become, it's a mandate. I've got to do this, this, and this, and I can't do that. No, I want to obey from the heart because I understand that he has showered me with his grace. He has poured his grace out on my life for giving. And I don't know about you, but I know what the old man is capable of. He said, no, I've taken that out of the way. You're a new man. You're a new creation. I've showered you in my grace. So now the response of my heart is to be obedient from the heart. To say, Lord, I love you. I want to live a life that counts. Thank you for the way you love me. I know that this is not some mandatory thing for salvation because that's already in place. But this is something that you produce in the hearts and in the lives of your people. Sold out, wall to wall, for Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here, Hebrews 4.12 says it really well too. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and listen to this, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Of the heart. Not the thoughts and intents of that body of sin that we were talking about, but the thoughts and intents of the heart. Paul is simply stating this point. We have a change of service and a change of ownership. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to God. As such, we don't shape our lives around sin or around the law, but from the Lord and his living word. There's a whole new dynamic which results in obedience from the heart. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice the tense he uses. Not you're going to be, but you have been. This is a done deal. This is finished work. It's part of the work that was accomplished on your and my behalf at the cross. It's past tense. The reason why real believers wrestle with sin 
is because we have been, past tense, made slaves of righteousness. Do you wrestle? Good. (laughs) I'm not saying that we lose our peace. But we are at odds with this world, with this new nature, with this new man, this new woman that we put on. We're at odds with this world that is just baked in sin. We live in a sin soup. And yet, he says, I've set you apart. You're no longer a slave to that. You're mine. You belong to me. And the result is out of the overflow of love in my heart towards him as I voluntarily submit to his ownership. That's why the thing that never bugged you before bugs you now. No consciousness of sin with the old man. You're just going, blowing through life, doing what you want to do. But there is a consciousness of sin now, isn't there? That's a good thing. And because we still have this flesh, this old body of sin that he talked about last week, because we cart this carcass around, we wrestle, don't we? He wants us to wrestle. Again, it's not about losing my peace, but it's about wrestling. Is that battle that he talks about between the flesh and the spirit in my heart. And as I go through this life and I wrestle with sinful attitudes, sinful thoughts, sinful habits, he's working. He wants me to yield to him in those things. So how do I become a better person? I yield. I simply say, Lord, I'm I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. There's that concept of being his slave. It's all through the New Testament, by the way, because of the, the, the culture that they were in, this example comes up a lot. Yeah, we're we're not I'm not talking about literal slavery here. It'd probably would get censored from Facebook or something. But we are talking about the concept of who we belong to. We either belong to sin. We belong to righteousness. We belong to the Lord. So the context is clear. He's referring to freedom from sin as a dominating power in one's life. He's essentially saying that you you now have a new master, so serve him. Uh, Just as a sidelight, last week I mentioned pithy little statements that we use. And, and, And again, please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to nitpick. I'm just saying that there are a lot of statements out there that go halfway. And I understand the sentiment. (laughs) And I would be fibbing, I'd be sinning, if I told you they didn't bug me. Because it's, it's almost like there's an assumption that we're not smart enough to understand the depths of God's word. And, and we are, because it's not my smarts. It's about his Holy Spirit illuminating his word to my heart, to my life. Uh, I talked about you know the, the saying, let go and let God, or turn on the light, or other slogans like that. Here's a couple more. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Just forgiven? Oh no, this goes way beyond just forgiven. There's another one. It's okay to not be okay. I understand the sentiments, but the thought is totally incorrect. It's incompatible with what we're seeing here. The message is not about coming into God's grace that I who was forgiven or that I who was not okay just remained there. The transaction goes way further than that. In chapter 6 we've seen that we're transformed on the inside with the old man dead and the new man being put in there. You've seen that. That's part of what he's talking about. The next thing we see is that we're put into a new environment, no longer under law but under grace. The next thing that we're looking at here is Paul says that you have a new master. You used to serve sin, now you serve God. The result is righteousness. These are substantial truths. We're not talking about just being forgiven or just being okay. Those only reach part way. Why? Because we were at that time enslaved to sin. And if you belong to Christ, you are no longer enslaved to sin. What he talks about, the word for slave here in these passages is the word doulos. 
And that was the common term for the lowest form of slave in the empire. There were a lot of slaves that had, there, and I, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but there were slaves that held jobs and had careers and did all of that, but they knew where they reported to at night. We're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody who is sold out, somebody who has no rights, has no identity, as I mentioned before. Uh, by the, a guy by the name of Kenneth Wiest, uh, he's a Greek scholar. I love his work. I, I refer to it a lot when I'm doing word studies, and he actually wrote a book called Greek Word Studies in the New Testament. Uh, and, and this is what he has to say. Uh, it, it, I, it, I'm basing it on what he has to say. But put some things in, into perspective here. He's talking about a doulos. He's talking about a bond slave. This is someone who was either sold or born into the condition of slavery. In the Roman Roman Empire, a slave had no personal identity. His will was swallowed up in the will of his master. This is someone who was bound to his master with bonds so strong that only death could break them. He served his master with no regard for his own interests. Now, regarding our slavery to sin, the following was once true in regard to that. We were born as enslaved to sin, the nature of Adam. Our will was swallowed up and captive to sin within us. Our bondage to sin was so strong that only death, spiritually dying with Jesus on the cross, could break his hold on us. We were so enslaved to sin that we served it to the disregard of our own interests, even when sin was destroying us. Think about it. My mother was an alcoholic, and she was pretty hardcore. She went to, and, and she was a very loving woman. She, she had issues that went way back. My point is, is that she was enslaved to alcohol. And, and she knew that it was killing her. And yet she remained enslaved to alcohol until Jesus got a hold of her. She struggled until the day she died, but she wasn't the same after that because the bondage had been broken. What are you enslaved to? Jesus is greater. He, he brings power to a powerless life. The following is true in regard to our slavery to righteousness. He says, we are born again now as slaves to righteousness. Remember, it's a past tense deal. It's not something that we're working towards. Our will is now swallowed up in the will of God. It is his will that matters to us now, not our own. How often do you see that battle set up in your heart? Where, yeah, I mean, I think about Jesus there. He's saying, Lord, Father, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. In other words, even going to the cross, even knowing that he was going to be imminently arrested and then tried and then crucified, he's saying, if there's any other way. But he knew that in order to accomplish our redemption, redemption, there was no other way. And so he says, Father, not your, my will, but your will be done. Very often we're faced not with the magnitude of that decision. Of course, that was one person once for all. But very often we're faced with decisions where we're saying, do I want my will here or do I want God's? I know that in marriage, my wife and I, I I look at our marriage and, and we have a good marriage. And I also know that we are growing. There are times where there's no longer an argument at the end of a comment or whatever because there's that checking in with dad. There's that, do I want my will here? And, and we're in process, don't get me wrong. Or do I want God's? Do I want to do this my way or do I want to do it his way? I love the passage that says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Do I want to have that second look? Or do I want God's will in my life? It says it's his will that matters to us, not our own. We're bound to Jesus with bonds that only death can break. But because he's conquered death, guess what? Those bonds will never be broken. 
So now, as a result, we willingly choose to serve Jesus with disregard to our own selfish, lustful, sinful interests. That's what this is about. That's what he's talking about when he talks about you can be enslaved to one master or the other. Now, I also want to note, too, that the the phrase in, in verse 18 where he talks about being set free from sin, it doesn't mean that they no longer had a sinful nature or us. Neither does it mean that they no longer committed acts of sin. He's talking about sin as a lifestyle. He's talking about not in an uninterrupted lifestyle after you're saved from verse 1 and not in an occasional delving into sin, as he says in verse 15. As long as we're in this body, we are prone to sin. But I want you to understand something here. The difference is we are not predisposed to sin. The power of sin is broken. Sinless perfection. There are groups out there that talk about sinless perfection. I just want to touch on that for a minute. Um, It's an illusion. It's not attainable as long as we are in this body. That's why he talks about this body of sin. He talks about the members of our body. I sin with my eyes. I sin with my arms. I sin with my my voice. We sin in this physical world because we have a physical body, the the body of sin that we pack around. He makes that distinction. We sin and we will sin until this mortal puts on immortality. But the point here is not to live in that place. Well, I know I'm going to sin, so I'm I'm going for it. That's what he's speaking against here. The point is live as free. You're free. I'm free. I don't have to live that way. I don't have to go down those roads. I don't have to entertain that thing. I don't have to gratify my flesh. We'll talk about that more when we get into chapter 7 because it's all about that. Verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. So first off, Paul is explaining here why he's using this word bondservants throughout this passage, why he's using slavery, the literal slavery that they lived that was all around them, There were people among them in the Roman church, I would be relatively certain, that were slaves. He's saying, this isn't an insult. This isn't a slant on you. I I, I speak this in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He's saying, there's a spiritual principle here that I want you to get. Never mind the slavery thing. Understand the, the principle that I'm bringing across. His purpose in this was not to demean, it was to illustrate. There are two truths in verse 19 that I want to tag here as we begin to wrap up. Uh, First is get acquainted with your new boss. Get acquainted, be acquainted with the one with whom you have to do. I'm not talking about the body of sin. If you belong to Jesus you will be enslaved to that which you obey. You ever think about that? That which you feed will grow. That which you starve will die. I mentioned a a couple of times over the last few weeks about if you have to take that thing 50 times a day to the Lord, then do it 50 times a day. But I want you to understand the power of sin being broken in our lives. Yes, sometimes those temptations are strong. Yes, sometimes we have to do business with the Lord a lot on a certain thing. But the Bible also tells us that if we resist the devil, he has to flee. He's the one, obviously, that places these things in front of us. That doesn't relieve us from any accountability. That's not right. But the point is, is as we resist those thoughts, as we resist those temptations, as we resist that old habit that just won't seem to die. 
there is victory to be found. Sometimes the victory is in a moment, in an instant. I remember my old pastor was an alcoholic. He said, man, I just didn't, I was praying one day and God said, go pour out all your booze. So I poured out all my booze. Never had another drop after that. And he was delivered. Uh, I know somebody that was delivered from alcohol, people that have been delivered from different things. Sometimes it's in a moment. Sometimes it takes a while. I had a horrible temper as a young man, filled with rage. It had a kind of a creepy upbringing and an evil stepfather. And I was just an angry young man when I got out of the house. And I'll tell you what, I prayed out of the, the book of James, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. I prayed that for six years because I was so tired to go in and have and tell people I'm sorry because I unloaded on them. I began to realize that as in looking back, as I would take that to the Lord, as I would pray that prayer, well, Lord, it's been a while since I've lost my temper. And then pretty soon I began to realize like six years in, it's like, oh, Lord, you've taken that away from me. And yeah, it could, somebody pushes anybody's buttons hard enough. I'm not saying that that's totally gone because I still have this body of sin. But that temper of mine has been put in subjection to Christ. It's gone. I don't walk around losing my temper. (laughs) The point is, sometimes it takes time. Don't give up. Why? Because you're a slave to righteousness. You've already been put in that place. You work for Jesus now. Don't present your members as slaves to uncleanness, that body of sin that he talks about. You choose. That which you feed will grow. That which you starve will die. It might take a while. The second thing here in verse 19 is there's a contrast here. He talks about lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. How many of you have understood in your experience as a Christian that when you start compromising, it leads to more compromise? You start loosening up on this thing or that. You know, nobody gets up in the morning, he says, I think I'll go have an extramarital affair today. No, there's a compromise. There's a settled compromise that goes on. I will take that next look. I am dissatisfied with this. I do have, I'm justified. We can rationalize anything. What are you feeding? It's going to grow. He says, lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Be careful, folks. Compromise in the little things leads to compromise in the big things. It leads to rationalizing. It leads to all kinds of debauchery. It leads to sin. It leads to our relationship with God being broken. And I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that you're not saved. I'm saying that the nature of your relationship is not him empowering you any longer. It's that of coming around in front of you and saying, stop, stop. You need to yield that to me. He's giving you the ability to do that. Do it. He also says in this contrast, he says there's lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Yeah. But there's righteousness leading to holiness. I think that's awesome. I would much rather have my life reflect that than the other option. I want to live rightly. Because I have to, because he's going to beat me up, he's waiting for me to get out of line? No, not at all. But because the response of my heart to the grace that I've been shown, the freedom I've been given, is I just want to live well for my Lord. I want my life to be a witness. Am I there yet? No. Positionally, yeah, but practically, no. I'm in process, just like you are. And yet, 
I asked the question earlier on, how do I sin less in my life? And this passage is a beautiful exposition on just how that happens in our lives. You will arrange your life around what you value. You will. <laughs> and and, and the, the caution that I have is if you value the wrong stuff, you'll start moving in that direction and you will gain momentum in that direction. It ends up with being enslaved to sin. Or if you value your relationship with the Lord, I'll tell you what, folks, repentance, that word repent, it means to change your mind. It means to stop going the direction you're going and turn around and go the other direction. It's a beautiful thing that he gives us. It's a beautiful gift. It's not some mandatory compulsive th- or compulsory thing that, you know, yeah, I've got to, you know. No, 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 no. What it is, is, is God providing me with a way. He says he'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but he will always provide a way out. What is that way? It's repentance. It's change your mind about that thing. I'm giving you an out. Won't you take it? The other thing about this that's critically important is that godly habits are, are, are made. Godless habits might offer temporary pleasure, but in the end, he says here, they cripple, they kill. I was thinking about that with like with this crazy ringtone I played for y'all earlier that whenever it's time to pray, I get elephants in my ear. And, and, and my wife's in my evening is interrupted several times by elephants these days. And I love it. What it's doing, what I realize is like, yeah, okay. It's almost, you guys know what a Pavlov response is? it's almost like if I hear an elephant, I got to pray. It's like, that's crazy. But it's almost like that. It's like, that's the response now because it's been going on for a week. And, and so these three times a night that my stupid phone goes off and starts playing elephant sounds, the beautiful thing about that is it's forming a habit. And I told Stacy, I said, you know, I'm going to keep this going after the Africa team returns. Because it's, it's bringing about godly discipline. It's bringing about discipline in an area. And I pray a lot. Don't get me wrong. But it's bringing about a discipline of prayer that uh, I am really enjoying. Godly habits, they're important. Form them. It's part of that which you feed will grow. It's part of being a slave to righteousness and not a slave to sin. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Yeah, in our unregenerate state, we could care less about righteousness. What, what the heck is righteousness? That <laughs> would be the response from the world. I don't really care. Yeah, oh, you Christians, yeah, you guys have this ding, thing. But Paul says the reason why here, as he shifts into this last couple of verses, He says, look at the fruit of your servitude. It's either to sin or to righteousness. Verse 21, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For for the end of those things is death. So I want you to think big picture here, guys, not short term. What is the end product of enslavement to sin? Oh, it might bring you pleasure. Sin is pleasurable. I mean, if there wasn't an allure, it would be no big deal. We've talked about that. It's not that, oh, this wretched, ugly. No, people don't get addicted to drugs because they went out and they had a terrible time. People don't get addicted to alcohol because it was hard. If you look at any aspect of sin... It produces pleasure, but that's not big picture. Pleasure for a moment. At what cost? Enslavement to sin. Or do you want to be enslaved to righteousness? I think it's important that we take spiritual inventory 
from time to time. And, and honest self-examination is not easy. But I mean, just getting alone in the quietness of our own heart and saying, Lord, uh, like the psalmist says, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, what would you like for me to, to, to put on the altar in my life? Paul, he challenges them and us to inventory the fruits of an unsaved life, the life that I had, or the fruits of a life that is backslidden. Make no mistake about it, if you're involved in an aspect of sin, you're backslidden. And it's a dangerous posture. I remember being at a men's retreat one time where a guy came up to me and he said, you know, I went through this whole thing uh, with, you know, my marriage ended and my wife left and da 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 and he said, I don't know if I'm saved. And I said, you know what? Let's talk. And we talked for a while. And I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying, encourage this man. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. But encourage him in Christ. He was walking with the Lord and Satan was just having a field day with this guy. And yet I also remember talking with somebody else who had been involved in uh, an adulterous affair and had left his family, hung him out to dry. And there were scriptures that came to bear that, you know what? You're in trouble spiritually. We, just, we can't distill everything down to a neat little formula. The Holy Spirit has to get a hold of that thing, get a hold of that person's heart. Because at the end of the day, is that person serving sin or are they serving righteousness? This poor guy that I was dealing with, he was doing what he could to serve the Lord and train up his kids and all of that. And his life had gone sideways. I'm not going to condemn him. But the other person is like, well, God told me it's okay. I can live with my girlfriend. It's like, nah, not so fast. You're serving sin. See, that's where the line is drawn. The point is, spiritual inventory is a good thing, even if it hurts. Uh, the fruits of those activities, which as believers, we are now ashamed, is what he says here. Uh, one guy drew up, uh, this is an inventory that, uh, that I copied down that I thought was good. He talks about faculties abused, affections misguided, time squandered, influence misused, friends wronged, trust broken, love outraged, especially the love of God. Or to sum it up in one word, shame. Not guilt, but shame. I know my past. I know the areas that God has delivered me from, and I praise him often. I know the areas that, the way that I lived in past times, the shameful aspects of that. I don't live in guilt. I think Paul understood this too when he would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. He didn't live in the guilt, but he sure experienced the shame for what he had done. And he could write this with authority. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness. I love that, that word, but, but. He says, yeah, take inventory. Look at your life. Look at what you've been delivered from. But also look at where you are. But you've been set free from sin. You become a slave to God. You have your fruit to holiness. Yeah, your life's not perfect. You're packing around this flesh. And yet you've enslaved yourself to him. You're no longer a slave to sin. In the end, what you'll reap, not death, which is what sin produces, you'll reap everlasting life. So true conversion changes a person's position completely. Now he's free from sin as his master and he becomes a willing slave to God. I, want, I choose to identify with him. The result is a holy life, practically. We're talking about practical sanctification here, that we have been declared holy and now God is making us holy. This is all about being practically sanctified through the interaction that we have with the Holy Spirit in our life, through him delivering us from aspects of that old nature, from 
from him, from that sin nature being the dominant driving force in my life. No, I have a new nature. I have a new man. He's taken that out of the way. We have the opportunity to live a better life now. To be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better employer or employee, to be a better parent now. It all goes back to the work that was done on the cross. This verse refers to life in its fullness, free from the penalty and the power, and one day the presence of sin. Verse 23, very famous verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He talks about what we looked at here is two masters, sin and God. Two methods. He talks about the wages of sin and the free gift. What's a wage? Something you earn. What's a gift? Something bestowed. The gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin, death. He talks about two aftermaths, death and eternal life. The wages of sin, death. Folks, I can't encourage you enough. Get big picture about sin. Not about, oh, I blew it here or I blew it there, but big picture in your life. Understand that God's serious about it. He's so serious, he sent his son to die for it. It's not meant to guilt you or to shame you. It's meant to give us perspective. Notice here that eternal life is in a person. And that person is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Which master do you serve? And, and understand, if you belong to Christ, your master is him. You don't any longer have to be enslaved to sin. And if you are, help's available. Repent, give it to him. Ask him to cleanse you, and he will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to, to, to throw these hard passages at us at times. And, and, and Lord, just understanding that we have no real option but to examine our hearts before you. Lord, thank you that you have seated us in the heavenlies and that you see us already as perfect. And now you're working in our lives. You're forming us. You're you're changing our mind about things. You're working out that sin that has so captivated us living in this crazy world. And you're causing us to look at this, to learn to live differently. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the freedom that we enjoy. Those wonderful gifts that you give us just by virtue of the fact that we're your children. Thank you, too, that you're taking a serious attitude about sin. Pray, Father, for your empowering, for your help, for you to reveal those things in our lives, and that the response of our lives would be to voluntarily yield those things to you, that we would simply want to have our lives governed wholly by you. Lord, we thank you that we're in process. You don't hold us up or beat us up, but that you simply want to work, that you've set a people apart and now you're setting us apart. Help us to understand these truths, Lord. We give them to you. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.